Hi, I'm Caroline Solabello, and this is Folk Pod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians on the folk scene. So get ready for a deep dive into a life lived through music in the studio, on the road, and now more than ever, online. If we're lucky, they might even play us a tune and help us figure out what folk music really is all about. We're going to go right into this thing. Hi. Hi, Carolyn. You know, we're here chatting and we chat so much on the phone, right? Oh my God, we chat, we chat, we chat, we chat. So that's what we're going to do. But this is to mark the one year anniversary of this podcast. And I'm so excited to do this with you. And you were one of our first guests and you were a sensation. So thank you for agreeing to be on the other side of the mic. Cheryl Prashker, I don't know if I was a sensation, but I certainly know I was a guinea pig. So it's really nice to be back again on the other side of the microphone. Well, not really the other side. It's the same microphone, but I get to ask you questions today that we have known each other listeners for more than 20 years. There are probably things that we've never talked about, even in all of that time. There's probably things that we never delved into. There are probably lots of things that we've forgotten. So I'm going to try and direct the conversation this evening to things that I've always wanted to know and that maybe your listeners have always wanted to know now that your listeners have been listening to you for a year, interviewing all sorts of folk luminaries. That has been an eye-opening experience for me. So Cheryl Prashker, my friend, <laughs> host of folk pod <laughs> welcome to your own show <laughs> this is cool let's go back to the beginning isn't this cool sure at the beginning of the holy book it says in the beginning and so at the beginning of the book of cheryl prashker <laughs> tell me about your earliest musical experiences whatever that means interestingly enough i do remember wanting to play drums from before the age of five because i we moved to a different place when I was five. And I remember being in this apartment and I remember picking up hairbrushes or anything I could find and tapping with things. But the truth of the matter is there was just so much music in my home. Both my parents were just huge music lovers. My father just loved everything the 50s and the 60s had to offer and would always sing along to everything. And my mother was a piano player, a pianist and a piano teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah, she was a piano teacher. And she actually wanted me to play piano from a very early age, but she just thought it might be best if I take lessons from another teacher. So I did. It didn't last very long. I think I started just a little too young. Well, I started at five. That's young. Which I suppose if you want to be a concert pianist, it's not young, but it is young. I suppose for the Suzuki people, that's kind of yeah. over the hill, but yeah. you know, <laughs> your hands are so small when you're five. I know. I know. I remember the books I read out of. I remember everything interestingly enough, but I just remember not loving it. But watching her play piano was always a treat for us when she did it. And I remember her playing the Flight of the Bumblebee, the jazz version <gasps> of the Flight of the Bumblebee off by heart. Wow. And I had no idea what it was at that time, obviously. But later on in life, I ended up playing that on the mallet. So it kind of was a neat circle. And you realized exactly <laughs> how good she must have been to be able to play that. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. So there was a lot of music around the house. And we grew up listening to anything from, like I said, 50s rock and roll to John Denver to Neil Diamond. Those were big influences on me because those were my first introductions to singer-songwriters. 
And I mean, I saw John Denver when I was young and I saw Neil Diamond in concert when I was young. And that was pretty cool. But I only picked up the drums a little later on. I was a little bit older. I knew that you had played piano a little bit. I didn't remember that your mom was a piano teacher. I remember you told me that she played and she played well, but wow. Yeah. What is it that drew you particularly, do you think, to the drums? What is it about the percussion that grabbed you over piano and over guitar? I don't know. And I did take guitar lessons for a few months also, mm-hmm. but again, that didn't even stick. I just wanted to play drums, but I cannot tell you why. I just knew that that's what I should be doing. From a very early age, I remember falling asleep to music and I remember drumming, you know, with my fingers on the bed while I was falling asleep, like just little things like that. There's nothing else I ever thought I wanted to do, which is really weird. And so much so that you ended up at McGill. I did go to McGill, yeah. Studying classical music, right? Well, in in Quebec, in Montreal, where I grew up, there is an interim college level. So we finish school in grade 11. High school ends in grade 11, Mm -hmm. and we have two years of a pre-college or pre-university program. So you go to a different school. It's a university atmosphere, but the pressure is not quite as great. So you're able to choose your classes, Mm -hmm. and you choose a major, and you get a chance to taste what it's like to go to university without the cost because it's free Mm -hmm. and without the pressure because if you decide you want to change your major, it's not a big deal. But I wanted to audition for music and you had to audition. Mm -hmm. And so in grade, end of 10, grade 11, I started working towards the audition for this CGIP program and the school was called Vanier School in Montreal. And I got in. The program is two years and I had an incredible teacher. His name was Ron Page. And we just hit it off, although he gave me a hard time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he was older than the hills, but <laughs> right. he died at the exact age that I am right now. I was going to say, yeah. he's probably about our age, right? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that he yeah. died so young. That's terrible. Cancer. He smoked. There were times in the classroom that he had two cigarettes lit. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Oh, God. And that probably wasn't even considered unusual then. No, you know? it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. He was a jazz drummer, but he was teaching us classical percussion. And he kept at me to practice. And every time I'd walk in, he always knew when I didn't practice. Mm. And I, at the time, could not figure out how he figured that out. And, you know, it's obvious to me now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He was such a big influence on my life. I mean, the first influence on my musical career was my high school teacher, Mrs. Susan Stern. And to this day, I cannot call her Susan. Mm-hmm. So it's Mrs. Stern. Right. And she was a young teacher freshly out of school. And she had such a great music program at our high school that many of us went on to study music. Basically, a whole chunk of us really were into the music program. And she was huge. She always pushed. And a funny story is that I walked into the grade seven music room and I talked to her and I said, look, I'd like to play drums. And I didn't start until I was 11 or 12. I said, I want to play drums. But I understand that if you play drums in the music program, you have to be in the band. And I said, I can't be in the band. She said, why? I said, because I'm too shy. (laughs) I said, I cannot do it. It's out of the question. But I want to learn. She said, well, if you're in this music program, you have to be in the band. You know, you have to be in the concert band. Everybody does. I said, no, I cannot. I cannot. I will not be in the band. I'm too shy. (laughs) And I said, and I have to play drums. Like I was so adamant about it. Well, she gave me the drums. But what she did was she gave me a pair of sticks and a practice pad. And she said, there's the room. Have at it. Mm. So there was nobody teaching anything. So I kind of taught myself in a way. And I did the usual drum stuff, you know, oompa, 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 as you do in a high school concert band. 
And I kind of learned pretty quickly. And the first time she made me get up on that stage for the band that I didn't want to be part of, I was so nervous. I thought I was going to die. Well, not only did she make me go into the band and be on the stage, she forced me to come up to the front of the stage during the concert and play a solo in front of everybody. Mrs. Stern. Wow. <laughs> Mrs. Stern. <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. Stern. <laughs> yeah, God bless her. Because, you know, once I did that and learned how to twirl my sticks, there was no turning back, I suppose. Oh, see? There was no turning back. She knew. She knew somewhere in yeah. you was a showman. She just knew. <laughs> I don't know about that. But moving forward now to the CJEP years, Ron Page pushed me harder than anybody's ever pushed me. And I'd come in and say, look, I just can't do it. He'd walk over to the board in massive letters, one cigarette in one hand, the chalk in the other, and write, there is no such thing as I can't. And then sit down, not say a word to me. I like him. And just say, play it, just play it. You know, whatever it was I was supposed to have had ready that I didn't have ready. Oh, he gave me such a hard time, but lovingly. And then when I said to him, I was a little bit interested in the jazz program. He brought me over to his house and he sat me in a corner and he played jazz on records for like three hours until I had it all ingrained in my head Mm -hmm. so that I could move forward and take the jazz course as well. I've had a lot of wonderful people in my life, but, you know, Ron was basically the person that pushed me to audition for McGill and he passed away before I got into McGill, but he pushed me to do it. So, wow. I'm sure that he would be pretty darn pleased at how you've turned out. (laughs) And the myriad ways that you've ended up using your skills, which is incredible. Oh, thank you. But when you started at McGill, what kind of a career did you envision for yourself? Hmm. Like, I'm going to go to McGill because I want to play an orchestra or you want to be a jazz drummer. What did you see for yourself? I'm not 100% sure I knew because the truth of the matter is I wanted to be a rock drummer. Mm. Although I loved playing any kind of music, even playing classical music. If anybody ever saw me play in an orchestra or concert band, even though you're supposed to be very still and serious. And I was kind of always boogieing in the back <laughs> to the music. Did you twirl your sticks <laughs> No, the no. timpani? The, <laughs> that I didn't do. <laughs> twirl your timpani mallets. Just kind of always bouncing around a little bit and really getting into it. And people would always comment on how, how much fun they thought it was to watch me bouncing <laughs> in the when I was supposed to be stern and quiet and serious. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't see myself pursuing a career in an orchestra. I didn't see myself auditioning for an orchestra, although... I probably could have, and I maybe should have tried that. I didn't see that. I really wanted to be a rock drummer, and I was also just at that time getting into the whole Yiddish theater, which we can chat about, and I was realizing there's other styles of music that I'm enjoying just as much, but I knew that the classical background, the classical chops, for lack of a different word would be really important no matter what music I play. So I wanted to get those four years. So I did three years at the CJIP level because I did take the extra year for the jazz course. And then I did four years at McGill. So, you know, I was very, very lucky to have that. Wow. It has served you well. And you were very wise for a young person thinking that most people would be like, I quit school, I'm joining a rock band. But like, (laughs) you laid the foundation, which is pretty amazing. Thank you. Now, yeah, we are going to talk about the Yiddish theater. I want to know how that happened. And I want to know where you went. I mean, I kind of know where you went, but tell your listeners about, uh, about the Yiddish theater. Very fortunate. I have an older cousin who's a first cousin of my mother's, but a little bit older than she was. And uh, his name is Sidney Zoltak. And he was a member 
of the Montreal Yiddish Theater. And Dora Wasserman was the leader of the theater company and had been for decades at that point already. And I guess they were doing a musical because they would switch between musicals and serious theater. He told her about me, and I don't remember the circumstances of us meeting for the first time, but I did get sort of brought in to that world to play a big musical that they did. And when they did their plays and their musicals, it was a three-week run, three weekends and all week, Mm -hmm. right? twice on Sunday, as they say. Yep, yep. So it was long rehearsal periods and a great run. And this was a play called The Sages of Helm, and it's basically along the same lines as Fiddler on the Roof in a way about Mm -hmm. the small town in Eastern Europe and all the silliness and all the characters that the town has. And I got to play that music. Now, I don't understand Yiddish, but my grandparents spoke it and I was around it a lot, but I didn't really understand it. Dora Wasserman was a force of nature and she created this incredible group of people that became family. And it was kind of what I needed at the time. I guess I was... 17 or 18. And my mother had passed away when I was 16. So I was kind of in a, you know, not sure where I want to do, not sure where I want to be, not sure where I want to go. So this was exactly what I needed. and It was great. So I got brought into that and rehearsals and everything. But the thing is, it was in a theater that held about 300, I think, sort of a small theater with the stage down below and the seats going up. Oh, like an amphitheater style. Yeah. Yeah. Amphitheater Mm -hmm. style. And At that time, no microphones for the actors. Mm -hmm. The actors were mostly, I would say 99% amateur actors that did this for the love of the theater. Everything in that time was in Yiddish. Right now, if you go see a play at the Yiddish Theater, they do have English subtitles and sometimes things are in English or it's half and half. But back in the day, it was uh, 100% Yiddish and I didn't understand a word. And the musical director was incredible. Ellie Rubinstein, fantastic. He wrote a lot of the music for these plays. And that alone was an honor. And he was an incredible institution in Montreal. So what would happen is I didn't understand the words. You had a lot of people in the play who would make stuff up from time to time. So (laughs) from any given night, nothing would be the same. And I kind of had to follow along with what was going on to sort of keep up with what was going on. And then you'd have the old lady in the front row going, what? I can't hear. The music's too loud. <laughs> right. But I had to play loud enough for them to hear me because right. they were going all, all over the place and changing things up and making jokes in different times. And if they forgot a line, they would just make stuff up. It was awesome. But not understanding the language, I had to play quietly enough for the audience not to be upset and loud enough for the musicians to hear me to make you know the conductor happy. And it's kind of where... I developed what I feel is sort of one of my fortes is to be able to play quietly enough on drums to support the lyrics. Yes. (laughs) And that's why what I do now with a singer-songwriter is what it is. And I always go back to my time at the Yiddish Theater. You know, I was extremely lucky to be with them for about eight years or so. And we traveled to Russia for three weeks. That may not have been the first trip. We did tour all of Europe as well, Belgium and France and Switzerland and places like that with the theater, which was in itself an incredible experience. But we went back to Russia and this was 1989-ish. So an interesting time. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very interesting time to be going to Russia. Very interesting time to go to Russia. What had happened was Dora 
during the war had left Russia. She was a young actress in her 20s, and she left and never had gone back mm. until that time. She had a sister there that she never saw until we walked into a room, and there she was. Wow. And that was 50 years wow. they hadn't seen each other, I think. So there's all this emotion wrapped up in this for you and the people surrounding you. That's incredible. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible experience. We played Kiev for a week and we played mm. St. Petersburg for a week and we were in Moscow for a week and we toured around. We were lucky enough to have the CBC documentary people accompany us, one cameraman and oh, really? yes, one interviewer and news person. And there is a half an hour video. Everybody has it on VHS. So I do have to get a copy of it, make a DVD because it's quite something. It was a whole documentary done on this because we would play a show and we did that Helm show. Mm -hmm. So it was basically a lot of music and dancing and clapping and things like that. A little bit of story and a lot of music. We would play the show mm -hmm. and these people in the audience, although they were allowed to come and see this performance, they may not have heard or spoken Yiddish since the war. Mm because they weren't allowed to. right? And so the emotion of that mm -hmm. led into every single night, an hour and a half show, and then magic would happen. We would start playing music and we would invite people to come up on the stage and dance and just clap. And we would literally stay for an extra two hours just playing music and watching these people dance. Oh, wow. And it was like unbelievable. Wow. The things that we saw and the things that we did mm. at that time was spectacular. Just incredible trip of a lifetime. So I'm very fortunate, as I have been throughout my life, to have music bring something like that into my life. Now I'm sitting here and I have a light bulb over my head. And these are things that we haven't <laughs> talked about. I knew that you had done this. It's almost like a direct line. I was like, how did you get from conservatory to folk music? <laughs> but there's the line, there's the thread, because your description of playing after the show and mm. people dancing on the stage, that is folk music yeah. right there. It's what they wanted. Yeah. They just craved it. They wanted it. They remembered songs. They remembered melodies. They would hum along. Mm -hmm. If it was a song with lyrics, they would sing along all in Yiddish. And it was magical. Wow. Magical. And I think there's some footage of that in the documentary. And most of what you guys were playing, was it improvisational at that point? Oh, yeah. 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 We had an incredible uh, accordion player with us. Wow. And a clarinet player, I think, and myself on drums. We would just say, okay, let's play that one. <laughs> See what happens. You know, that kind of thing. Holy wow. Yep. A fantastic experience. And then there you are traveling all over Russia, Europe, and then you land in New York. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm probably skipping over a lot of things, but you know, you land in New York. I land in New York. Why <laughs> did you land in New York? How did that happen? <laughs> well, the short answer is a guy. All right. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. But, yep. Well, more importantly, the guy went his own way. You guys separated, but you stayed. You stayed for a really long time. You became a New Yorker. I did. I thought about coming back home to Montreal and I guess I was... 28, 29-ish. And it was interesting because I didn't have family in New York. I was in a band. Yes, rock band. Which I adored mm -hmm. called Earth Radio, which I adored. It was very much like 10,000 Maniacs. Oh, yes. Oh, the singer had that quality in her voice and the songs were great. To this day, I miss playing in that band and all I have is a cassette tape. But if there's any way I can get a cassette switched over to MP3s, we will play a song on this if I can do it. Now don't be deceived 
Earth Radio was just a spectacular, fun band. We rehearsed like crazy. I played full drum set. It was like everything I wanted in a band and the people. And just about the time that I broke up with the guy, mm. the band broke up too for various crazy reasons. So that was a shame and it all happened at once. And it was a tough time. But to be very honest, if I can be completely honest with my audience, there was some pride and I didn't necessarily want to go back mm. and feel like I didn't accomplish right. what I sent out to accomplish. So there might have been a little bit of stubborn pride and, and I stayed, which is in hindsight, crazy. Well, lucky for me that you stayed, because if you didn't oh stay, I would never have met you. And <laughs> yeah. part of me, the very proud New Yorker in me, wanted you to say that you fell in love with the city. <laughs> I did in a way. I mean, there's no doubt we all know as folk musicians, it's hard to live there if you don't have a ton of money. Let's just be honest, folks. It's a hard city to live in. Sure. And I was completely by myself. And so it was a little tough for a while. Music was kind of slow because I had put everything into this band, everything. So I didn't know a lot of people. To be honest, I didn't know anybody. And I started working in a pharmacy because I thought, okay, I should go back to getting sort of a part-time job. And pharmacy is what I knew because I worked in a pharmacy in Montreal when I was going to school. And I learned so much and I loved it, loved it, loved it. Actually, to be honest, I started working at the pharmacy before we broke up. It was his brother that got me that job, to be honest. So I do owe them the family a debt there. So I started working at the pharmacy and the pharmacy was full of musicians. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, this wasn't just any pharmacy no. that you worked at. You worked at like one of the most famous pharmacies in New York City in the West Village where yeah. like yeah. fancy people like Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson would just come in <laughs> for their prescriptions. So yes, Bigelow Pharmacy in Manhattan on 6th Avenue between 8th and 9th is where I worked for seven years. And the owner at the time was like uh, the father and Jerry, and he played saxophone. Hmm. And then his son, who took over the business, who I worked for, he played drums. Oh. And so we would go out to see music together. He introduced me to a ton of jazz clubs in New York that I had not known about because I was kind of focused on the rock thing. And it was great. And the people that were working there at the time were fantastic. And I fell in love with working there. And yes, I was kind of fortunate because a lot of kind of cool people would come in. Bigelow Pharmacy has been open since 1838, has never closed a day since 1838. Not even when the power went out in the early 1900s because they had the original gas lighting still hooked up. <laughs> of course they did. All right. So, and I worked every Christmas and it was great. I mean, it was a fun place to work. And the reason the actors and musicians alike would come in is because they were treated just like any other customer. Nobody made a big fuss. As a matter of fact, I remember being told, don't make a big fuss yeah. when the actors come in because that's why they come in because they feel comfortable. This goes back to the 70s. There used to be a lunch counter at Bigelow's and the whole gang from Saturday Night Live used to come and eat there literally three times a day. Wow. Because they lived around the corner and they all lived together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That whole gang from the 70s, John Belushi and the gang. So it was just kind of a, always been a place that actors and, and more famous people felt comfortable. But yeah, I got to meet some cool people. So even in your day job, you were rubbing elbows with the glitterati. <laughs> the glitterati. Really? I mean, like, people don't know uh, this, but like all the people that you're interviewing on this 
podcast, quite a lot of them you have appeared on stage with, gone on tour with. <laughs> yeah. And certainly there's more that you haven't even gotten to yet that you have played with. I guess my schmooze day started probably at Bigelow's because, you know, schmooze. Robert Downey Sr. used to come in and we chatted a lot. And right. I mean, he invited me to a reading of his play. Oh, well, I do remember that Robert Downey Sr. Sr. showed up. At oh, the right. open mic where I met you and we were all completely starstruck. And Cheryl's like, oh, yeah, this is my friend, Robert. And we're like, ah. well, For <laughs> listeners, Robert Downey Sr., of course, is Robert Downey Jr.'s father, who was also a big film star yes. and kind of a heartthrob in his day. Yeah. But he was still a very handsome. He was, wasn't he? Oh, movie star yeah. looking guy. Yeah. With yeah. his white hair and everything like that. So, yeah, Cheryl, you've always known these fancy people. And you have a way. My Lou Reed story oh, is... tell the Lou Reed story. Tell the Lou Reed story. <laughs> you know, for somebody who was so shy, I have to look back on the whole Lou Reed thing and say, what was I thinking? This is great. To quote Christine Levin, what was I thinking? So again, we were told, don't make a big fuss of the stars when they come in, mm-hmm. especially Lou Reed. And don't ask him anything. <laughs> People still had what we called house accounts. So you'd put whatever thing on the house account and they'd mm-hmm. pay at the end of the month, like the good old days, you know? So he comes in and everybody scatters. <laughs> the whole pharmacy scatters because they're all afraid of him. Okay? Yeah. Because you didn't want to upset Lou Reed. That was always the message. Don't upset Lou. But I was brand new and I knew who he was, but I didn't let on. And he's like, I need a humidifier. I said, well, there's a bunch of humidifiers up there. Take a look on the shelf. Mm. No, I don't want any of those. Okay. So I go downstairs and I get a humidifier. No, I don't want that one. So I go back downstairs and I get another humidifier. No, I don't want that one. What I really wanted to say was like, look, dude. (laughs) But what I said was, okay, there's not a lot of difference between these. This one's a good one. Take it. Whoa. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. I didn't say it quite like that. Yes. He's like, okay. (laughs) And that was it. And after that... He would literally call up and say, can I talk to Cheryl, please? <laughs> See? Very persuasive. So we became like buds as far as the pharmacy goes. You know, I'm not divulging anything private, but he called up one day, you know, because he just lived around the corner. So people would come in to Bigelow's, not necessarily for prescription stuff. Yeah. In fact, I don't even remember him ever getting a prescription. But basically, we had this incredible section of European products like soaps and cosmetics and mm-hmm shaving creams and things that you just didn't find in, in American pharmacies anymore. It was kind of like the good old European stuff. Yeah. So a lot of these people came in for that stuff. And he called up one day and he's like, I got a really bad cold. And he was cute. He was a funny patient because he was obviously miserable. <laughs> he's like, I can't breathe. Send me something. And I'm like, okay. He says, but here's the thing. I can't fall asleep. You can't give me something that's going to make me fall asleep. I said, well, if you're stuffed up and you want an antihistamine kind of thing, it's possible it's going to make you fall asleep. He's like, no, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't. So I said, but you're stuffed up, right? He goes, yeah. I said, well, why don't I send you one of those personal little steamers? You know, that you put your face over and, you know, a little steamer dude thing. Oh, yeah. So he's like, okay, I'll try anything. So I send him over the personal steamer and I don't hear anything back. A couple of weeks later, I was in the restaurant down the street having dinner and he was in there as well, but he was with friends. So I didn't go over and bug him. He came over to me. He said, Cheryl, I know it's like, oh my God. You're instantly cooler to the people you're with because Louie just came over to your table in the diner to talk to you. He says, Cheryl, I got to thank you. You saved the show. Oh yeah. He had said he had a show. Right. And that's why he couldn't fall asleep. I figured as much. Or he didn't want something that was going to put him to sleep. I'm sorry. Forgot about that part. 
So that's why I sent him the personal steamer thing. So he said, you saved the show. I said, I'm glad that worked out. But you know what? You never told me which show you were going to be doing. He said, oh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, it was David Bowie's 50th at Madison Square Garden. Oh, my gosh. And then he said, and everybody had a cold and everybody wanted that little steamer. <laughs> and I passed it around. He said, <laughs> oh, my God. Now, if you go back to David Bowie's 50th birthday party at Madison Square Garden, there is a video of that. King of New York himself, Mr. Lou Reed. And you can tell that Lou Reed is not feeling well. Oh, my. Because he's kind of sniffing and stuff. Oh, that's hilarious. And I'm like, I saved the show? Yeah. See? What I really wanted to say was, where were my tickets? Right. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't. Or do you need a drummer? Yeah. <laughs> well, Lou. but I got to tell you, Eric Anderson, whom I toured with, and he were best buddies. And you know how they say, if you could have a chat with anybody who's no longer here, all I would have loved was for Lou Reed to still be here. I know that it would have been a really interesting chat about me working at the pharmacy 20 years ago. And it just would have been cool. And I'm sorry that he's no longer here for various reasons. So yeah. To get Lou Reed and, and, and Eric and myself in a room. Yeah. yeah. That would be something. It'd be something. Which brings me to my next point. You have your schmooze, you know, we jokingly refer to it as, you know, the art of the schmooze, but that implies kind of an artifice, but you do it Oh, so very naturally. It seems to me, at least as a person who's been friends with you for 20 years, that you're genuinely interested in people and what they I am. have to say and what yeah. they're like. You really are. I mean, you know, you schmoozed me the day you met <laughs> me too. <laughs> and yet I felt very seen. And here I am, this like hard-boiled New Yorker. And you're yeah. like, hi, I'm Cheryl. And you start talking to me immediately. And I was completely disarmed. And I'm like, oh, a person I can be friends with. And I trusted you like immediately. And Listeners, for 20 years, Cheryl has never betrayed that trust. So there you go. It's not just a schmooze. It is oh, thank you. genuine. But because of that like genuineness, you seem to attract people, not only the downtrodden weirdos like myself, but fancy people like Eric Anderson, like Lou Reed, like the people grow to trust you. And you end up on stage with a lot of them. Brag for us about the people that you've been on stage with, because I could make a list, but I'm sure I'll leave someone out. Really, you've played with like everybody and their mother. I'm very fortunate. Like I'm fascinated by people and I'm also empathetic to what it's like to just walk into a room, fish out of water and not be comfortable because, you know, I've always been shy and it is hard for me to walk into a room where I don't know people. And so, for instance, the open mic, you know, I did the same thing to Laurie McAllister at <laughs> Sun, you know, that kind of thing where... If I see somebody who's just fascinating to me and who has especially musical talent, I kind of want to welcome them to the tribe that I'm sitting in at that moment and get to know them and get to know their music and what makes them tick and stuff like that. But I've been very lucky. I don't know why. The list of people that I've met that have made an impact on my life because they seem to like to hang out with me, which I don't understand, it is fascinating. Having been at NERFA, the conference I've talked about many times on this show, I was playing music and Jonathan Edwards walked by the room 
and saw me play and and then started chatting with me and said, I want to play with you. And then I ended up touring with him for a year. And yeah. that was magical. I learned a lot. And now looking back, I feel I was such a greener when it came to touring like that. This is going back probably 15 years. Even talking to Tracy Grammer and getting a chance to play with Tracy mm-hmm. on the Falcon Ridge stage, I was deathly afraid of going up to her and talking to her. I was so shy. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. See, even after 20 <laughs> years, you could surprise me. To tell me that you are an inherently shy mm-hmm. human is yep. really surprising to me. That's amazing. Maybe endears you to other people. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, I met Tracy at the Philly Folk Festival for the first time yeah. after Dave Carter passed away. And uh-huh. I literally just went up to the signing booth <laughs> and was almost afraid to ask her for an autograph. That's how shy and nervous I was. And I'm also starstruck in a way, like a little kid. You know, I love meeting cool people and people who are up doing their thing. But I've been very lucky with the people I've met. A very big person that I cannot not talk about is while I was working in New York City at the pharmacy, I met a gentleman named Manny Cravat. Oh. And he was working at our store as a consultant for what he does. He was a pharmacist, but ended up working in surgical supplies. And he came over on his way to retiring. He spent a few days a week helping us out. And we met because we had music in common. That's right. And he said, would you come over and record a song? I know you're a drummer and I need some drums. I have friends who have songs that I've recorded in my little studio, my little home studio, he said. And I'd love to put drums on a song. Only one? A one. One song. That's where it starts. <laughs> Listeners, I know Manny Cravat too. Manny is a friend of mine as well. Manny is a dear, dear man. And now I'm thinking, you guys are more alike than I had realized in a lot of ways. Maybe. No, I mean that, you know, Manny is very direct. He's a talented guy, he plays a whole bunch of different instruments, but he's also very direct in asking. And he understands that he is a talented guy and he understands that what he wants, he asks for. I need a drummer. Come over. Yeah. Come over. And you walked up to me the first time you met me and you said, here, I just produced this record. Would you like to buy it? And I said, yes, of course. Never heard of you in my life, but I gave you $10 and I bought the record. What I was thinking. But yes, you and Manny are very much alike. Yeah. I recorded for him and I recorded more songs and more songs. And these were friends who actually didn't know he was putting drums on their music. But that's a whole other conversation because that was kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And he said, would you like to record one of your songs? Now, I had written a few songs, but nobody, and I mean nobody, was ever going to hear them. So he said, would you like to record one of your songs? And I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, as long as you're not in the room, because uh. <laughs> I'm too shy. Sure. So he literally taught me how to use the recording equipment and gave me a key to the place and said, knock yourself out. And so I started learning how to record myself and record guitar and vocals and put some drums on top of it all and recorded some music and maybe we'll sneak one on. We'll see. And it's through that whole period where I started going to open mics. Well, you made your first album at Manny's Place, right? I have it. I made a whole album. I'm the proud (laughs) owner of a copy of The Ocean's Doorway, Cheryl Prashker's debut album. As a songwriter, listeners, your host (laughs) is a songwriter. I bet lots of folks don't know that.
that's how I knew you first. That's true. I mean, yes, I knew you were a drummer, but my first impression of you was here Cheryl up on stage playing guitar and singing a song shh, that you wrote. Shh, not so loud. I did? Not so loud. It's true. Yeah, I went to open mics, but I was so <laughs> afraid. I met Mark Limebury there, mm-hmm. very important person in all our lives. Mm-hmm. And Mark saw that in me and he kept pushing me to come up and do my songs. He said, it doesn't matter whether you forget the words. It doesn't matter if you forget the chords. Just keep coming to this thing. And trust me, just keep coming to this thing. Keep doing your music. And I only had a handful of songs, and but I did. And that was Fast Folk Cafe before it closed. Yes, and it was downtown. the end of the Fast Folk Cafe where a lot of people got their starts. Christine Lavin and Jack Hardy and Suzanne Vegan, all those people from New York. John Gorka and Lucy Kaplansky and so many people. Yeah. All of them. They all got their start there. And I was just hitting that open mic and going to shows there. And that's where I met Charles Nolan. And we eventually obviously got married and were together for a long time. And we wrote a lot of songs together. magical too. And I'm so very grateful for that because it was an incredible process to take somebody else's lyrics and put music to it. And then you joined this band where we all wrote (laughs) songs and that was what you did. You were the drummer in the band, but the drummer wrote just as many songs in the band as everybody else. And was that (laughs) mind-blowing? It was for me. (laughs) Oh, very mind-blowing. Yes. So this Fast Folk Cafe closed down And the gang decided to open up another open mic on the Upper East Side. And it was called Sun Music. And that's when you guys walked in. That's when Carol Ann. That's right. Walked into my life. Yes. And Cheryl Prashker walked right up to me and shook my hand, sold me a record (laughs) and changed my whole life. (laughs) Right there in one fell swoop. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I don't know about that. And we were very fortunate because going to that same open mic was the gentleman who did our sound check tonight, Rich Boniface. That's right. And then Ryder Daniels. That's right. And I remember standing outside chatting with Ryder and you, and I guess Rich was there. I assume so, because we all really respected each other's music. I think Ryder suggested, I'd love to invite you over to my apartment one night to swap songs. Right. And that's how the band CC Railroad was born. And yeah, it was mind-blowing to think that anybody would want me to sing and play guitar as part of the band. I could never have scripted that. (laughs) To this day, I don't even know how it happened. Well, you wrote good songs and we all wanted you to sing them. And that was the easiest way for you to sing them. It's very hard for you to sing and play the drums at the same time. So we figured, you know. (laughs) I couldn't do it. 
So I did play guitar. No, and no one, unfortunately, could play the drums like you did. So we'd have a very simple drum beat when you were playing the guitar. Yours were the songs that ended up without percussion. <laughs> As I sit here far away Through the embers of the flames I recall the warmth of your touch To be always by your side In the shadows of the night You may always call out my Always call out my name Hidden through the years Out of the battles and the fears Stands a strong man With so much to give With the world at your feet And a love so complete That nothing stands in your way That nothing stands in your way I'm overwhelmed by the Precious moments too For the days that lie ahead This much can be said We'll cherish what life offers next We'll cherish what life offers next I'm overwhelmed by the love That you carry for me now Overwhelmed by the trust in your eyes By the kindness What was so amazing in that project was obviously the friendship. You know, we rehearsed every Monday night religiously mm -hmm. and the bond, it was incredible. And we've seen each other through so much stuff, marriages and kids and all kinds of things. 9-11, yes. obviously. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we had each other to lean on and amazing music. And we toured sort of locally and that was fantastic. I think we could have maybe done more. You know, we didn't have the explosive breakup. So I guess technically we could still get out there. Are you angling for a reunion tour? <laughs> yeah, reunion tour. What I meant to say was, what was amazing for me as a songwriter and somebody who got a chance to sing my songs, but who was very shy, was the fact that I had the three of you doing harmonies behind me. Ah, yes. Well, I'm the kind that never lets the guard down. But now I find whenever you're get lost in you I want to get out of my own damn way I want to let you let you in I want to ride the wind I want to get carried away and that's why I did it because to me hearing that sound behind me was worth everything it was the most incredible experience I've ever had so thank you Rich Thank you, Ryder. Thank you, Carol Ann, for letting me be 
in your band. Oh my gosh. And likewise, but we all kind of grew each other up in music there. Yeah, we did. We knew nothing. No, we knew nothing. We (laughs) learned about how to make a band. I mean, you, I think, were the only person who had any significant experience playing in bands at that point. The rest of us, we were like, I don't know. I guess you play this part and I'll play that part. But we didn't know how to make arrangements or anything like that. I knew how to sing harmony, but that was pretty much it. And we would bring each other new songs. We grew each other up in songwriting. We would give each other feedback without ego. I remember the process being fairly smooth for like incorporating new songs into the repertoire. It was natural. It was organic. Somebody would bring a song and Ryder was usually the first one to start sort of noodling and jamming along with it. And I play a beat and I don't even know how the harmonies happen. They just happened organically as well. And they just happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I came from a rock and roll background. I'd been in the band in New York Earth Radio, but the very first band I was ever in that I didn't even talk about was a rockabilly band in Montreal when I was 17. What? Rockabilly band, <laughs> just three of us. The lead singer and guitar player played a big red Gretsch. Oh my. <laughs> and he kind of looked like a blonde Elvis and sounded like a blonde Elvis. So he was like Brian Setzer wannabe? <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Literally. He had that mm-hmm. hair even. Tom, Tommy. And the name of the band, Are You Sitting Down, was... Pete pneumonia and the chronic disease. <laughs> and there was nobody in the band named Pete, although apparently there was at the beginning. I like that. Yeah, I have a tape of that somewhere. <laughs> I know exactly the time period. This is like when we were in high school, you know, like mid 80s, yeah. right? Rockabilly yeah. was cool again. Exactly. Rockabilly was cool for a, a minute, a hot minute with the stray cats. I played bars. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, I played dive bars in Montreal. Like, I can't even believe some of the places I walked into. How did I not know uh, that? Wow. <laughs> I had so much fun. Your cool factor went up even more there, my friend. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Sure. Holy crap. Anyways, I digress. Sorry. Well, you played in the dive bars of Montreal and then in the dive bars of New York City. And then somewhere along the line, (laughs) you met the queen. Somewhere along the line, you met Joni Mitchell. And you need to tell the people how you met Joni Mitchell. It's a great story. Well, I had been touring with Eric Anderson for a few years, whom I met at the Mariposa Folk Festival. And if you don't know Eric Anderson's music, you must. He's an incredible, incredible writer and has been doing such writing since the 60s. And it's just incredible. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric. How blessed am I? <laughs> Get to you. Yeah. Get to you. <laughs> I love playing Eric's music. So, and he has been friends with Joni Mitchell for a very, very long time. And in fact, Joni is the godmother of his daughter, his firstborn. So we were playing McCabe's music shop in LA. And as everybody knows, Joni had a fall a few years ago, and it was actually an aneurysm. So she was recuperating from that. And we didn't think she'd be able to come out, but she came out to see our show that night. That in itself is mind boggling to me. Got to talk to her for a few minutes that night. And magical. She sat through the whole show. She's a big fan of Eric's music, and obviously she sang with Eric. She is the background singer in the original version of Blue River, which was a big hit for Eric. Yep, she sings background. Right, right. That was the first time I was in L.A. I had to leave, so that particular time, which is going back maybe four years ago, I did not see her again. But the year after, we went back, and she was actually feeling a little bit better, doing better, walking better, communicating better, and just working her butt off to feel better and was doing an incredible job. And she came to see our show again and then Mm. invited us all over for dinner. Oh my God. (laughs) So there we were going to dinner 
at Joni's house. Now, <laughs> for those who don't know, Caroline and I were part of a big collective of women's songwriters in New York. It's <laughs> a whole other story, right? That's a whole other story. <laughs> Chicks with Dip. And we did, for the 40th anniversary, the Blue Album in its entirety. And that was an incredible experience as well. Touring that with all of you was just fabulous. So after all that, to get to meet Joni, who's from Canada as well. The other side of Canada. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to tell anybody how big a deal that is because everybody kind of, yeah. you know, understands. So there we were. She decided it was Taco Tuesday. And so that was what it was going to be. I don't know why that's funny that there's Taco Tuesday at Joni's house. I know. She made the decision. I love that. She's like everybody else. She does Taco Tuesday. She's yes. human. So there we are in the dining room and there's the Grammy on the mantelpiece. I'm like, oh my God. Before that, we were sitting in the grand room in the living room, as I suppose you'd call it. There's paintings that she's done all over the place. And her favorite painting is of where she grew up in Canada. Mm. And we talked about that a little bit. And that was just unbelievable. And there's the piano and there's the guitars. It was a wild situation. But the funniest thing was, I think I told you this. Yes. I don't know if I should share this with everybody. Oh, come on. <laughs> it was Taco Tuesday after all. It was Taco Tuesday. And there was guacamole and chips on the coffee table. And she was sitting in a chair and I was sitting on a couch and other people had just for some reason gone off and done whatever for a few minutes. And there I was alone with Joni Mitchell. And I say to her, would you like some guacamole and chips? And she's like, yes, I really do. <laughs> but she couldn't get to them. So I pick up the very expensive bowl, which I was afraid I was going to break on the very expensive floor. And I take it over. I'm shaking. I bring it over to her sitting on the chair and I lean it on the, <laughs> the chair so I don't drop it. And there she was going to town on the chips and guacamole. And I was like, there's nobody here to see this. It's just me and Joni and the guacamole. I'm picturing you like a cupbearer for the Roman emperor. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it was oh, awesome. You have a bond now. Not over being Canadian, not over being musicians, over the guacamole. <laughs> oh, my God. I was sitting almost next to her at dinner, and there were more paintings on the wall, and there were beautiful paintings of cats. As we know, painting mm -hmm. is the first love of her life, and she did all the paintings that were on the walls and there were very many paintings of cats and she's a big cat lover. Oh, I love her even more now. <laughs> and then we went back into the great room and I think she asked us if we would play. We were doing a show somewhere else the next night and we were like, let's get some instruments and just practice. And we played for Joni. How did you keep it together? I wanted to experience it. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to remember this because she has brought such joy to so many people. And all I wanted to do was bring joy to a woman who had suffered a terrible health issue. And that's what I was thinking of. I wasn't thinking of, oh my God, it's Joni Mitchell. And what if I suck at playing this djembe? I was thinking, I just want to bring joy to the person who has brought joy to so many people for so many years. And that was the most important thing to me. And as it is, anytime I play anywhere, that's what I get out of playing is I always look at the audience. And I love the looks on their faces if they're having a good time. That's beautiful. And that's what we got with Joni. And she hadn't sung a note since she'd had the accident and she wouldn't sing for us. We talked a little bit about the Blue Album and what it was like to make it. Like She talked a little bit. And then Eric Anderson decided he would do his version of her song, River. And it was beautiful. And she quietly was singing along. Mm. And the people who were helping out, she has people in the house that are helping out. They heard it and they literally dropped what they were doing and came running wow. 
because they were hearing Joni Mitchell quietly sing for the first time in like two years. Wow. And that was magical. Wow. And now I understand she just loves having musicians come over and play. But to have been one of the first to do that for her, can't describe what that meant. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of things that have happened to me that are just beyond magic, beyond magic. And I'm very blessed. That's mind blowing. Yeah. And because you told me about it, I want you to know, now I have that experience vicariously because you told me about it in such detail when you came back from there. I dreamed that we were at Joni's house <laughs> hanging out, that I was with you. I dreamed this because of what oh, you described to me. God, and, really? Yeah. You know I've been a Joni freak forever and ever and ever. Yeah, I know. I know. So thank you for that. I really wish I could have had you all there. There's no doubt about it. Oh, but you did. But you did because you told us about it. I got back in touch and they accepted me sending them a copy of Our Blue. That's right. So Joni has... Us in her house. So there you go. And the copy came from my house. So (laughs) there's something that was in my house that's now in Joni's house. (laughs) There you go. Which gives me so much satisfaction. Got to go over a couple days later, just Eric and I, and we went swimming. And I have to tell you guys, Joni Mitchell's pool is blue. Of course it is. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You swam in Joni Mitchell's pool. Yeah, I did. I did. If you don't do anything else in your life, you got to the point in your career where you could swim in Joni Mitchell's pool. That's all I have to say. In talking to you about all these experiences and the theme that I've always felt was there and to all the people who've questioned why I continue to make hundreds of dollars in the folk music industry, as opposed to Mm -hmm. more money elsewhere, it's from playing to the older generation of Jewish people in Russia to playing for Joni Mitchell in her own living room when she couldn't sing a note herself. The joy the music I have been part of gives other people, it's priceless. And that's why I do it. Oh, yeah. And people should know this. Perhaps your longtime listeners will already have surmised this, even if they have never heard you play a note. You're not like Forrest Gumping your way through life, (laughs) just happen to be in these places. You are recognized and noticed by people because you have a great gift, several great gifts, you know, not just your musical gift, but your gift for conveying that music with heart and soul and listening and listening not only in a musical sense, but listening to people like we were talking about the schmooze before. It's not you just selling yourself. It's you making people feel seen and making people feel heard, and which is what you do on this podcast all of the time that I have enjoyed listening to for the past year. <laughs> Thank you. Episode after episode is you're making people feel seen. And so hopefully this will help people see you a little bit more with their ears because obviously they're not looking at you right now because this is radio. <laughs> this is radio. I realize that. Yeah. I want to take a little detour. Like your career has not been a straight line at all. It's not like, well, you got out of music school and you went boom, 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 straight line <laughs> no. to performance. You have this whole other shadow career almost or a second parallel hmm. career in arts administration, starting with working with NERFA, the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, which you participated in as a performer to start with and then ended up as the president for many years and being on the board and bearing the heavy load of organizing this massive conference once a year for so many years. And then now, of course, you are the artistic director of the Goderich Celtic Roots Festival in Ontario, Canada. So huge, right? You have these big administrative jobs, which you (laughs) seem to enjoy thoroughly. (laughs) Oh, God. How is that? You know, the other day I was talking to somebody about 
name that one person that you met along the road that so changed your life and so threw you into one direction where you might have gone to another direction. And again, I go back to Manny Crevette. You know, he brought me to something called the spring thing in Philadelphia. It's just a weekend away. They take over a kid's camp. They play music. They do workshops. They eat together. And he brought me to that as a drummer. Now, again, I was super shy and they didn't really like drums because they were folky purists. Yeah. <laughs> so the two together was a terrible combination. But they don't even like songwriters. No, <laughs> no they don't. They want to sing traditional <laughs> songs only. It's true. I went there and they were like, what? You write songs? Your own? What? <laughs> okay. So I went to that and I met <laughs> Diane Tankle. Diane Tankle is another force of nature who at the time ran the spring thing and something called the fall fling where they do the same thing in the fall and was a very, very important part of bringing folk music to Philadelphia. She ran concert series and had weekends at her house where she would invite people to jam and do sings. And it was a regular occurrence. And she was just very instrumental in starting the very first Folk Alliance. You know, there's a whole podcast that I'd like to do on that. And I would like to invite her onto the show to talk about that. But, you know, I got to meet Diane. And at the time, I was just moving to Philadelphia. Yeah. So Charles and I were moving to Philadelphia because New York was getting kind of expensive and tough and job changes and things like that. So moved to Philadelphia and I end up working for Diane in the office, helping her to run the conference. And my job was basically answering phones, answering emails, answering mail, because we were still doing mail then, getting CDs to judges and all things mm -hmm. like that. And just kind of learning the ropes of the conference because I had only been there twice I'd learned so much. I mean, it was basically a full-time job, but it was part-time. And again, it took me a little bit longer to get to a point where I could say that I'm a full-time musician. I always had that part-time job. I always thought it was a curse, to be honest, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. I mean, it has opened mm -hmm. up so many doors. I worked in a rehearsal studio in New York, just doing sound, but I met so many amazing people. I met Suzanne Vega again there, and I met a group of guys that because their drummer couldn't make it, I ended up sitting in with and joining their band, a band called Whiskey Run. Right. And I loved playing drums in this Texas rock That's band. That's right. And I wouldn't have met these guys if I hadn't been doing sound in a rehearsal studio. Texas rock band full of guys from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> they were great. I remember them. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. They were great. God, they were amazing. And so I've kind of taken these detours working in these crazy situations that are not playing music, but I've learned so much and met people. So I, again, was extremely shy. I didn't really talk to a lot of the people in the industry. I didn't know much about the scene and the folk music singer-songwriter world, especially in the Northeast, but there is a scene and it is like a family. And I continued to work at this job, working with Diane for 15 years. And yeah. the conference grew and I grew and I learned so much and I met every single person I have ever accompanied since meeting you guys, obviously, in the open mic. Anybody else since then, I always met at NERFA or the big Folk Alliance Conference. That whole world changed my life and working with Diane changed my life. And, you know, I owe her a great debt of gratitude. I met incredible people, many booking agents and venue people and DJs. Oh my goodness. Gene Shea. Obviously we met Gene Shea before yeah. Yeah, having been on his show uh, from New York, but getting a chance to become friends with Gene and work with him. And then I went and started hanging out with him at the studio. 
and I would just like wrap cables and put microphones up and entertain his guests and hang out. <laughs> Yet another side road on your career has been the broadcasting thing that you did yeah. intermittently before yeah. podcasting. Yep, I did. I actually did a little bit of DJing for a Celtic show in New Jersey, you know, things like that. And then working with Gene and learning that side of things as well. But going back to NERFA, I mean, it very much impacted my life and everybody that I call a friend or part of my musical family, I met because of NERFA. And I grew from being a very shy person to somebody who learned how to, you know, lack of a better word again, schmooze and sort of meet people. And it was organic. I mean, sure, I wanted a gig. Hey, but no, I really wanted to meet people, learn about the venues that they had or the shows they had on the radio. And I became good friends with a lot of people that I met while working at NERFA. Right. Again, a life-changing experience. I met Shannon Lambert Ryan because of NERFA. Shannon Lambert Ryan, the, the lead singer of the band Runa that I'm now playing in, she was singing back up with the Guy Mendelow band from Boston. And Guy Mendelow's band had a showcase, a big 15, 20-minute showcase that they had earned. And he got laryngitis that night. Oh, really? And so she, having been the backup singer, took the lead spot. And I was like, wow. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. What a thing to have happened the day of the showcase and pretty gutsy move for her to come up and sing lead on a few songs and other songs that they did were instrumental. But the couple of lead songs that she took, I noticed her and I noticed her voice and chatted with her and got to know her. She was also from the Philadelphia area. So we knew the same scene. And she grew up at the Philadelphia Folk Festival as a volunteer with her folks. So we got talking about that. And she met Fanon, the guitar player. Who later became her husband. <laughs> right? Exactly. Who was a member of the band Fiddler's Bid. And we both saw him at the Philly Folk Festival. I saw Fanon Barra play guitar with Fiddler's Bid. There's a hundred million fiddlers on the stage, but all I focused on was this guy playing guitar because I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Well, he kind of plays guitar and drums at the same time. <laughs> yeah, he does. Very rhythmic. On a single instrument. Yeah. yeah. He's super, super talented human being. Guitar like no one else I've ever seen. Yeah. That's sort of how Runa formed. And so again, going to NERFA and learning the ins and outs of running the conference and then becoming a board member, which I'd never done before, and then being nominated to be president and having the honor of being the president of the board for a few years. Yeah, I learned a lot. Do I feel myself to be board material? I always tell people, sometimes jokingly, I don't see myself as that because <laughs> I'm a little bit more folky in a way, and I maybe should be a little bit more business-like <laughs> in the way I run things, but it is who I am. Oh, I don't know. I think boards of directors could use a little <laughs> more folksiness, if you ask me, in general. But then the Goddard Celtic Roots Festival, again, happened organically. Yeah, I mean, you go from going with the flow and ending up in these situations where you were a member of NERFA and then, oh, well, Diane needs help, so I'm going to help her out. And the same with Goderich. Here, I play the festival and you're a popular teacher at the festival and your band is popular at the festival. And then suddenly, oh, guess what? We need a, an artistic director. And then you go from going with the flow to rowing the boat, you know, and that's amazing to me. I don't know how it happens. I don't know how it happens, Carolyn. You got skills, girl. Just face it. You got skills. You got people skills and you got an ear for excellent music. And moreover, this was always apparent to me, but it's becoming even more apparent to me during this conversation is you have this genuine love 
for the music, first of all, and for the people who play the music. I do love that. Astounding. That's what ties all these things together. I love putting people together. I love introducing people. People have asked me over the years, can you help me with finding a show or finding a gig or finding a radio show? I love bringing people together. And so I loved doing that at NERFA. You know, when it comes to a festival like this, we have workshop stages during the festival where we put different bands or different members of different bands together. I love doing that. It's just amazing to watch musicians play together who've never even met each other. It's just magic. Yeah. Yes, I love touring and I love being a full-time musician, but then I also love this other thing that I get to do. And I don't know why I take on these roles because there is a very, very, very large lazy side of me <laughs> that would probably be okay just hanging out at these events and not taking on the responsibility mm-hmm. of running them. But I don't know why or how these things have happened because these weren't goals I was going after. They've happened organically, again, through the people I meet. I don't know how I got here. I know how you got here. You got here from your genuine love for the community and love for the music. And it's just all kind of pointing you in that direction. The current keeps drawing you back to the music, to the center, (laughs) to the love of everything. I'm not sure we've had a conversation, you and I, ever in the last 20 years that didn't have something to do with what's next and what's the plan and, oh, let's play this song. (laughs) But it always comes back to the music, no matter what else is going on. You know, it always comes back to the next musical plan. So what's next for you? I know touring is shut down for the year and you're settled in a house of your own. Finally, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I just got a chance to tour with Runa for the summer, and we hadn't seen each other, as we calculated, for 523 days, and Mm -hmm. it's a band that I've been with since day one. But who's counting? Yeah, who's counting? Caleb, our, our mandolin player, was, apparently. Shannon, Fanon, Jake, and Caleb so much, and I miss playing music with them, and it was just great to get out and play music again. Talking to Reggie Harris, who I got to see over the weekend while visiting Sunny Oaks, and they are both wonderful. I will report to our audience. I've had the tremendous opportunity of playing with Reggie, and I adore playing percussion for Reggie Harris. And I know there's a lot of people who I forgot Mm -hmm. to mention, like people we've had on the show, like Zoe Mulford and Pat Wichter and the Full Frontal Folk. Those girls from Philadelphia, big 
part of my life. And a band called So's Your Mom out of Philadelphia. I met those people before I ever moved to Philadelphia and I was playing with them before I ever moved to Philadelphia and they were a big part of my world and forgotten a lot of people that I've played with. So excuse me, but I've been very fortunate and having gotten a chance to play with Runa again this summer was amazing. And no, we don't have anything on the books until February or March and we will see what the world will allow us to do. But I'm recording a little bit, so I'm setting up a little recording studio, so I'm getting a chance to record Mm -hmm. with such people that we know, like Karen Oliver, and I'm hoping yourself included. Oh, yes. I'll (laughs) keep you very busy this winter, my friend. (laughs) That's something that's been a lot of fun to reestablish my chops in the recording studio, which I love doing, and we'll continue to work for the Goddard Celtic Roots Festival. We put on two virtual years and I'm very proud of those. This really is a dream job because it's an incredible festival. And Warren and Eleanor Robinson, the founders, created something beautiful. And I want to honor them and honor that and continue it as long as I can, as long as they'll allow me to. And I'm hoping that next year we'll be able to have a festival. So I plan to really devote myself to that and to playing music with whoever I can and hang out in the rural part of Ontario, which is not somewhere I ever expected to be, but here I am. Thank you for allowing me to ask you questions. Well, thank you for doing this. Uh, (laughs) Completely unrehearsed. This was Shauna's idea. Shauna's idea way, way back was that we would do this for the one year anniversary of this podcast, you know, and I can't thank Shauna enough because it was her idea and Rich, her husband, our bandmate Rich, who came up with the idea of asking me to work on this project of hers as a interviewer, which my eyeballs went all wacko when I heard her ask me this because I was like, are you talking to me? And I've had the best time. I've learned so much. I've had so many people say they enjoy the interviews and love getting to hear new music and learn about new artists because that's the point. Shauna's been amazing. She's produced these things and Rich has done the sound editing and it's just been so amazing to work with them So it was her idea. And again, I thought she was crazy when she said it. Nah, I didn't think she was crazy at all. When she said this, I was like, no, this is the best idea ever. Because it's another one of those threads in the tapestry of your career. It's all part of the same tapestry. And it doesn't surprise me in the least that you would be so comfortable doing this podcast. And so to wrap it up and put a nice bow on it, I'm going to ask you two very pithy questions. And the first one... I want you to answer just right off the top of your head. We could go on for a whole other hour on this, but off the top of your head, what is folk music? <laughs> I had no idea that you were going to ask me. That. I had no idea you were going to ask me any of these questions, but that one, uh-huh. folk music is music of the people, for the people, and that's my answer. That's great. <laughs> that's a great answer. I'm going to steal that, but I'll credit you. The second question I'm going to ask you is one you've heard before because it's one you ask every single guest on this show. So I'm going to ask you, Cheryl, before we close, here's a taste of your own medicine, (laughs) Madam Pharmacy. Might you be willing to share some quirk of your personality that might be surprising or perhaps delightful to your audience? Um, I didn't think this one through ahead of time. You're not supposed to. I know. I should have remembered that it was going to be coming. Off the top of your head, what is surprising? Go ahead. Shock me, Cheryl Prashka. I'm an open book and everybody seems to know everything about me. There's nothing I'm hiding. Mark wanted me to ask you about the hamburger claw. (laughs) 
the hamburger claw. If I don't get food by a certain time, I just keep my hand open like a C, which is basically a place to insert a hamburger. That's right. If you're with Cheryl and she starts to get grumpy, just put a hamburger in her claw. Yeah, that's the hamburger claw. The folks at the pharmacy know that if it's four o'clock, tea time. that I'm going to need something to eat. I'm going to need to go sit down quietly. It's tea time. Mm-hmm. Like literally, it's like clockwork. Mm-hmm. They laugh at me about that. And some people do know this about me, but I'm going to say most people don't. I was on a bowling league as a kid into my teenage years, and I wanted to be a pro bowler. That's a good one. Wow. Just think you could have taken a whole other turn <laughs> and been famous pro bowler. Cheryl yeah, Crasper. right. Lucky for us, <laughs> you chose music instead. Ladies and gentlemen, Cheryl Prashker. You can find Cheryl Prashker on the web at thefolkpod.com and CherylPrashker.com still. Yeah, CherylPrashker.com and runamusic.com. Thank you so much, Carol Ann Solabello, for being the host this week. Thank you, Cheryl. It was fun. I don't want your job. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I ain't doing this again. You're not doing this again. No. I ain't doing this again. I'll do anything for you. <laughs> but I ain't doing this again. <laughs> Which is exactly what I said to my husband the moment my son was born. I ain't doing this again. You know that, right? Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time. The kind of leaves you breathless and Last night I